I wrote down this sentence this week. That the, uh, the American dream is to become the very thing Jesus had little luck redeeming. That the American dream is to become the very thing that Jesus had little luck redeeming. We focus on, we drive ourselves to this goal, this idea, this, this, this destination, this dream that we would be rich, which means we would uh, not lack anything, we would have abundance, we would have control, we'd have power, we'd have self-sufficiency, we would have wealth, we would have influence, we will be rich. And it's a very logical end, it's a very logical goal, but we dream ourselves towards the very thing that Jesus had, little luck, redeeming. It's very paradoxical to me. We're in a two-week series, finishing up a two-week series called Faith in a Time of Famine. And what I've begun to realize is, is we're really good at thinking or, or believing that Scripture and God are, are there largely as a device or a tool or a strategy for preventing suffering. When, in fact, when we, we look all throughout Scripture, we see that, that God is not speaking in Scripture to prevent suffering so much as He's speaking into our suffering. And when we open up the Bible and we begin to read that, we have to take into account this tension of pain and suffering, and yet a God who is sovereign and good, and that Scripture holds these two in tension and, and literally speaks into that, rather than giving us some kind of, kind of strategy for separating them out. And so in John chapter 6, we see Jesus coming up to a group of people that very naturally and very much like us, are programmed to believe that a God is a God that works. So all throughout ancient cultures, if you go to war and you win, your God works. If you go to war and you lose, your God doesn't work and you probably need to go, you've got to go find a new God. And this is very natural and Jesus is talking to a group of people in John chapter 6 that he's just fed the day before with this miracle. He's multiplied the loaves and, and all of this and he, he hands it all out and these people are, are enamored and they're excited because it's working. And they show up the next day and Jesus completely changes tack and he says, um, you're, you're getting excited because literally I'm giving you food because, because it's working. But what you don't realize is I came not just to feed your belly. I came not just to work, not just to bring you material kind of prosperity. I came to redeem your souls. I came to, to connect you with God at a spiritual, relational level that has more than just to do with your comfort. I'm the Messiah. I'm the high priest. I'm the mediator. I'm the son of God. I, I'm, I'm here to reconcile you with God. And so he begins to talk very artistically like he's the manna. In the Old Testament, there was manna sent down from heaven. He, he begins to say, I'm the manna. I'm the bread. I'm, I'm the thing that God has given you to sustain you. And logically, with the art 
in the metaphor, he begins to say, so eat me. Eat me. Feed on me. I'm going to feed you and nourish you. I'm the source of life. He, he takes, and in different places, comes back to, to various metaphors to really say the same thing, that, that I'm the living water. I'm the source of life. If you want life, don't look for wealth, don't look for resources, don't look for food, don't look for water. All those things are great, they're not bad, but ultimately, the, the source of life, the thing that you need more than anything else is me. So into suffering, God speaks, and he speaks a spiritual message, and he speaks a deep message of redemption. But we have to wrestle with that tension because our appetites and our hunger always bring us back to immediate gratification. They bring us back to felt needs. So I've been wrestling with this a lot. I think that in the next 20 to 40 years that people who are in what's called the health and wealth gospel movement will be out of a job when, uh, <laughs> when everything goes you know, upside down or economies fail or this or that. All of a sudden people are going to have to come back to realizing um, the goal of this life isn't things get better and better and better and better and more and more like utopia, that it's a broken system and that God speaks into brokenness. And we can't just pray for brokenness to go away before God sends his son again and literally recreates this thing. And so this kind of preaching that God wants you to never be sick, God wants you to have all that you want, God wants to meet and fulfill your every desire, it's just not commensurate with Scripture. So instead... Um, well, this was, I was actually thinking about this on the way to Starbucks this morning. Because <clears throat> no matter how bad the economy gets, Starbucks will always thrive. Uh, I was thinking about it, and I was like, you know, when you really read John, uh, John chapter 6, and what Jesus is doing there, and that, like, everybody leaves. Everybody leaves. I mean, everyone leaves to the degree where Jesus kind of looks at his disciples and says, really, are you guys going to leave too? Um, am I going to be starting over here or what? And everybody leaves, and why are they leaving? Because he's a downer. Like, he, he's depressing them. He's not telling them what they want to hear, what they have a desire to hear. And I began to go, you know, say to myself, wow, it's amazing. You look at the prophets, you look at John the Baptist, you look at Jesus, you look at Paul even. Most of the, the, the people that God speaks truth through kind of have this little bit of a downer thing going on and, and they're not really telling people what they want to hear and then Paul talks over in Timothy and he's like hey there's going to come a time when preachers will tell people what they want to hear they'll tickle their ears they'll it'll be it'll be fun and exciting and isn't this great like it's, it's just one I mean that that there's going to come a time when there's no downer to it all it's all just wonderful um, God has a wonderful plan for your life. And, and, uh, and that's not what you're supposed to listen to, says Paul. That they're going to just take a slice of Scripture or the Gospel, or they're going to take things out of context, or they're going to twist things, and they're going to begin to put people at the center, and that God serves you rather than putting God at the center and saying, this is the plan. It's a big plan. It's, it's a sweeping narrative, and it, at this stage of it, it involves a lot of suffering and difficulty and trial. But 
that's okay because God is good. And he sent Jesus, and Jesus overcame the world, and that there's going to be redemption in and through this. And so I kind of began to go, wow, so you, you open up scripture, there's some real downer, depressing stuff, you know, and if you preach heresy, it's really exciting. And I started kind of playing with that in my mind. What does that look like for me if I, if I try to preach truth and scripture? I mean, is it going to be just, you know, Antioch becomes kind of like... Um, People calling each other, hey, make sure to take your antidepressants. Whitesmith's preaching this Sunday, you know. Um, hand Prozac out at the door because um, it's just too, you know what I'm saying? I'm I kind of struggling with that. And Jesus started with, with reality and he started with brokenness and he started with sin and he started with the need for redemption. But see, the beauty of the gospel is that if you start in the right place, it, it begins to set up and, and provide the edge for what makes the gospel so good. The, the deepest of deep, the, the, the greatest of problems, the real hole beneath the waterline in, in reality and in life is actually what is being plugged by Christ. And that despite circumstances or suffering, we have this relationship with God that he can prove over and over and over again and that our source of joy does not come from circumstance but it's tucked away somewhere much deeper that it's literally the relational fulfillment and the sense of groundedness and the sense of destiny and hope that we have. And so the gospel literally makes sense when we start kind of the story in the right place. And I think those of you that are diff uh, struggling with with true pain or true difficulty, what, what was the, the line in, in Chris's song? We're all just kids. We're all just kids uh, pretending we're not afraid. We're all, we're all kids pretending we're not afraid. If I was any more talented, I'd be a singer, not a preacher. Because you can say, I mean, if you, guys are, you guys know Micah, right? Every time Micah comes up here, I'm like, well, why did I bother talking for a ridiculous amount of time? Micah just said it in like two lines. Um, we're all just kids pretending we're not afraid. And I think that if you're in a time of famine or you've been there long enough, time of famine we defined last week is a, a climate in which you're slowly dying. Whether it's relationships, whether it's health, whether it's finances, whether it's just options closing off. And you begin to feel like you're just helpless, backed into a corner, nothing that you can do. Um, a climate in which you slowly die. If you've been in a time of famine, I think, long enough, then I think you're okay. You come to the point where you're okay not necessarily hearing the quick fix. We all start that way, right? Backed into a corner, man. Just give me the answer. Give me the way out. Enough time goes by, I think we're just like, man, just give me truth. Just give me truth so that I, I got something that I can hold on to here that I know is reliable, I know is trustworthy. And in that, hopefully restore a hope to me that I can look ahead and have something that I'm anchoring my faith in. And so what I want to do is just give two things to frame a mindset and then two things that we can literally do when there's nothing left to do. Um, that'll help us in a time of famine. So two things to frame a mindset. And here's the thing that I just want to kind of 
put on the table that when you can't find a way forward, there's no logical way forward. There's no open door directly in your path that the way forward usually involves a paradox. That when the way forward isn't straight, that it's usually a paradox that we, we begin to find or discern is, is the way forward. And so two things from a mindset standpoint and then two things we can do. The first is this. Doubt is okay. If you turn to Matthew, we'll see in Matthew chapter 11. John the Baptist hits a wall. When you've been living out in the desert, living free, you don't, you don't need anything from anybody, just like Shane Claiborne, you're making your own clothes and eating grasshoppers or whatever, like you are the epitome of free. And you're saying anything you want that you know is true because you don't, you don't need anyone's tithe money and you don't care if people stick around, you're, you're a prophet and you're in the middle of the desert. And you've got a guy that is as free as it gets and then he gets thrown in prison. What do you think a guy that's a prophet that lives in the middle of the desert is going to struggle with? It's, it's not that you affect his salary. It's not that you throw circumstantial hardship his way. It's not this, that, or the other. What it really is is you take away his freedom. It's the only thing that, that that's what defines him, right? So you got John the Baptist you just took away the most defining feature, one of the most defining features of who he is. And so what happens then is John heard what's going on with Jesus and he sent some of his followers and he sends them to ask, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? That's a really fascinating question. Do you guys know why that's a fascinating question? Because his mom knew who he was and who Jesus was going to be. Scripture says that literally when John was in the, the, the belly of his mom, that he even like jolted with excitement when, when he knew. I mean, there's like all this prophecy going on and it's cousins and, I mean, they, they've known their whole life. To the point where when Jesus shows up, John the Baptist says, look, that's him. And you know what? I, I don't... Influence is great, leadership is great, but leave me, go follow him. I must become less, he must become greater. I mean, just amazing stuff's going on in John the Baptist's life. I mean, he knows his place, he knows his calling. So what's amazing about this question, are, are you him, is what does it show? Doubt. I'd say it shows doubt. And when we kind of come to the wall and, and, and all of our momentum stops, because momentum's a wonderful thing. We feed on momentum and we feed on, on options. I mean, John the Baptist was pointing at Jesus and he was in the game and he was making it happen and seeing it happen and all of a sudden he's just in a, in a cell. He's behind lock and, you know, and key and, and, and there's no momentum. And his freedom's gone. And it's kind of like his season is over and, and he has doubts. And I think the first thing we've got to realize is uh, doubt is normal. 
doubt is normal. When you walk into church on a Sunday morning and you kind of try to do that, freshen up your face to pretend like everything's okay, you know, I'm about to see church folk. I got I to gotta, I gotta hurry up and get my hypocrisy on, you know. Um, we're missing something if we're setting up a culture where, where we have to pretty ourselves up that way. Doubt is normal. It's real. We're all kids pretending that we're not afraid. You know, the opposite of the word faith in a lot of ways is fear. Fear, I think, is the real word for doubt. Fear is the real word for doubt. I had a professor, my, uh, I took a class in seminary. So if you've ever wondered why we always have C.S. Lewis quotes, you ever wondered that? If you've been coming for a while at Antioch, you always see C.S. Lewis quotes. Uh, it's because I bought a C.S. Lewis book once. It was the only book I ever read, so that's where all the quotes come from. Um, now, I had a class in seminary on C.S. Lewis. Top by a guy that teaches at Wheaton by the name of Jerry Root. And the class just, I was pretty much a C.S. Lewis fanatic from when I was 22 and at Clemson somehow found C.S. Lewis and read through everything in them. But it was when I took this class that it really kind of became a strong admiration and just um, just enamored with how much C.S. Lewis really grasped of things. I mean, he had a really deep understanding of, of life and psychology and everything else. But in this class, Jerry Root said something when we were going through C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain. And he said this, wounds are deeper than our convictions. Our wounds are deeper than our convictions. Our wounds are deeper than our convictions. It's why when everything is going well, we have great faith. When things aren't going well, it exposes that maybe our faith wasn't as strong as what we thought. C.S. Lewis, when he lost his wife, wrote a, a journal that he ended up publishing under a different name. But in it, he talked about feeling like his faith, 20 years of faith in writing books on this stuff, and he talks about feeling like it was all just a house of cards. One good, strong wound, suffering, and the whole thing just came crashing down. Our wounds are deeper than our convictions. And we begin to find that trust is demonstrated more in seasons of severity than in seasons of ease. Trust is demonstrated more in seasons of severity than seasons of ease in other words, faith is spotlighted in a time of famine. Isn't that the story of Job? That the adversary goes to God and says, you're bragging on this guy. You think this guy's great. Well, of course he's great. He's got everything, he's got everything he wants. Why wouldn't he not love you? But if you destabilize that system, if you took everything away, if you slowly, over time, put him in an in, in environment of famine, a, a climate where he slowly is dying, then what would happen? The whole story of Job is really a story of, of faith being proven in suffering. So, Faith and suffering go hand in hand and fear which comes about in suffering is really the opposite of faith. It's, it's the, the struggle part of faith. But the thing we've got to realize here is that everybody 
when you're in a difficult season is going gonna, is gonna to wrestle with faith, which, which means we're wrestling with our fears. We're wrestling with our doubts. It's okay to doubt. It's okay to doubt. We're going to talk a lot about the book of Psalms this morning. And most Psalms start with what? Fear and, and doubt. I mean, the Psalms are incredibly powerful, especially the older you get, because they give voice to so much of what's natural, which is our fear and our doubt. So doubt is normal. Um, I wrote this down in my journal. I was flipping through some things this week. I wrote this down in my journal, I think, about nine or ten years ago. And I said this, Daniel, you remember the story of Daniel and the lion's den? Daniel may not have been eaten by the lion's but I'm sure he lost sleep. Just trying to look into that and go, you know what? I bet I know exactly what was real. <laughs> he might not have gotten eaten, but I bet he had a stomach that was all tied up in knots. Daniel may not have been eaten by the lions, but I'm sure he lost sleep. Doubt is Okay. Second one is we need to learn coming out of that to live the question. It's a phrase I picked up from Henry Nouwen, live the question. Henry Nouwen says, the life of faith is one in which we learn to live the question. Do you, do you see the paradox inherent in that? Uh, questions aim at answers. Questions are tensions that seek resolution. It's the nature of a question to be one half of a whole, right? So this, this thing Henry Nouwen said, to live the question is a really paradoxical statement. It means that, that we literally have the tension surfaced, the question surfaced, the, the hunger surfaced, but that the answer, the resolution is something that, that is either in the future or protracted over time such that we acclimate ourselves to go through time to live with the question. And I think that when we begin to look in Scripture, we begin to see prayer uh, with people like Abraham and Sarah and, and other key figures throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament is that prayer for us is very immediate. It's, it's put a request before God that needs an answer. It's a need that, that seeks a resolution. And we... We see, though, in Scripture that a lot of prayer is persistent prayer. It's prayer through a lifetime. It's unending prayer. It's, it's a broken record kind of prayer. It's living out a prayer or a, a cry to God. And faith, this, this kind of living through life and existing in, in the, the reality, the earthiness of life, means that we have to learn to live the question that we Walk by faith. Think about this real quick. The question and the tension without the resolution means you don't see the end. If you have the answer to a question, you have the resolution to, to tension, you now see the end, right? If you see the end, and that's what's governing your steps... You're walking based on a clear conception or picture. 
you're walking by, by sight. You see, what, see where I'm going with that? If you, if you understand the end and have a picture of it and it's clear, you then move forward by sight. The, in the great passage in Habakkuk and, and then pulled through in two different places by Paul in the New Testament, though, is that the righteous will, will live by faith, will walk by faith. And then he says it in a different place. He says, we're not going to walk by sight, but by faith. That faith means we don't always get to see. We, we move forward and our steps are governed and we, we exist through time in, in a state of trust. In a state of tension that there is resolution, but we don't really know what it is yet. We're banking on God who we, we believe and we trust has promised that he will resolve the inherent tensions and that there is hope for us. But it's not hope that we have now. It's hope a little bit deferred and on the horizon. And so we walk in a state of trust, not by sight, but by faith. We, we live the question. Does that make sense? Not everybody took their Prozac this morning. You guys are like, yeah, but that just, what am I going to do with that? <laughs> that sucks. Doesn't sound like fun at all. I think it's incredibly fun. I think when we get to the bottom of it all, when we strip away all the layers and we realize that the core of reality is that we are not forgotten and we are not separated from God, but we exist in a relationship with God where he knows us, he calls us, he loves us, and he promises to carry us. You take away everything else, you begin to learn that that's really the only thing that matters. It's phenomenal news. So what do we do? So doubt is okay, doubt is normal. Fear, wrestling with fear is okay. In that, we learn to live the question, which means to walk by faith. So what do we do? What does that look like? First thing is this. Find a new song to sing. It's amazing. And I mean, I mean actually find a song to sing. I mean that very practically, not just metaphorically. Find music. Go by the bed rest album when it comes out and wear it out there's something incredibly powerful about music and a song that that can pull you in and help you wrestle through and process through the realities of faith and your struggles and spit you out the back end in a place of hope songs are little mini machines that can convert your whole attitude and paradigm. I learned this first in high school when I wasn't a Christian. There was a girl that treated me really bad, and a friend of mine put me on to Led Zeppelin's Your Time Is Gonna Come. <laughs> and for two months, I wore out Your Time Is Gonna Come by Led Zeppelin. Um, I could actually sing it for you right now. It sounds really weird, but it's like, tattooed in my mind okay um 
the whole book of Psalms, when we really begin to wrestle with the idea that this was put to music, these were songs, songs, we begin to realize there's something powerful, especially when you're dealing with the grittiness of life. There's something incredibly spiritual about songs. Lamentations, if you want to turn there real quick. Last week we talked about Jeremiah. <laughs> Jeremiah is like the one dude in Scripture that nobody wants to be. You know, like you're, you know, you're, you know how you choose up basketball teams. If you got some like super all-star Christian kid camp, where it's like all the kids that are like the super Christian kids or whatever, and they're choosing up Bible heroes. Nobody chooses up Jeremiah. Nobody. You know, it's like the last guy in, you know, gets to be Jeremiah. Jeremiah's life is so bad that not only do we have a book um, of, of him and his life and his prophecy, we also have a book called Lamentations, which includes like a lot of the laments, you know. I mean, his life is so bad that it has to spill out into a separate like afterward, okay. Chapter 3 of Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 13. Just listen to this, right? He, God, he pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. I became the laughing stock of all my people. They mock me in song all day long. He has filled me with bitter herbs and he has sated me with gall. He has broken my teeth with gravel. Picture that. Have you ever slammed your face into gravel, fallen off a bike? Ever, I mean, just think of the picture of breaking a tooth. I mean, it makes your stomach sick. Right away, doesn't it? What would, a, what would you be feeling to write something like that? Like right now, if, if I said, hey, write down a prayer, and you wrote down, God has broken my teeth with gravel. You're living the question, buddy, you know. <laughs> He's broken my teeth with gravel. He's trampled me in the dust. I... I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord is gone. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. So we set the edge here and then all of a sudden here's the good news. It's almost like a little mini picture of the gospel. It says this, and Therefore I have hope because of the Lord's great love we are not consumed. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You know the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness? I say to myself, The Lord is my portion. Therefore I will wait for Him. One of the hardest times in, in grad school, I lost a best friend. It was my fault. Most things up until the age of 30 were my fault, by the way. If you just want to know my testimony, it's my fault. Tamara's helped me a lot. Um, I lost a best friend. Mostly my fault. Not all of my fault. But it was a really depressing time of life. There was a lot of things that went with it. It was just really scary. It was really depressing. <clears throat> I camped in Psalm 142. 
Psalm 142 says the same thing. It's all over Scripture. The Lord is my portion in the land of the living. It says in Psalm 142. Here it says, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. What does it mean? God is my portion. If I've got God, I've got my lot in life. If I've got God, I got what I need. If I've got God, I've got it all. God is my portion in the land of the living. God is it for me. He's the thing I'm grabbing onto. He's the rock. He's the, the refuge. I've got him and I'll wait for salvation. It's amazing what song can do to stir up theology in us and our understanding of, of what's so amazing about grace and what's so amazing about salvation and, and what we should be focusing our hope on. And, and I literally mean go find a song because it teaches you good theology. Um, I want to bring up my friend Brenda. We were at, uh, and you're going to have to grab the microphone, ben, Brenda. Uh, we, there was a going away party at Portello Wine Cafe. It's evidently how Antioch does missions um, for the Cambodia team on Tuesday. And so a bunch of us were down there and Tam and I were hanging out with Brenda and Don and we were talking about kind of this sermon and different things and kind of some of the theology in there. And Brenda shared a story, just um, a mom's story. And so I wanted to bring her up and just kind of have her share some of that again. But why don't you just frame it for us, the story? Well, mm-hmm. about um, almost 11 years ago, my oldest son was the starting point guard for sister's basketball team. And we went in for our semi-annual sports physical. And we were coming home from that. And what we had heard from the doctor earlier that day just kind of really laid us low, both my son and I. It was November, and it was dreary and rainy. And... What the doctor said to us that day was, your son has a hole in his heart. And what I really heard was only a portion of what he said, and that was, your son could die. He could have a heart attack and die. And we got home to a um, cold house. Um, It was rainy and Dawn was gone on a trip, and my other kids were gone somewhere, so it was dark. And my son just went up to his room and shut the door. And I went over to the couch, and I just plopped down, and I said, I literally cried out. I said, Lord, how am I supposed to respond to this? I had told Brenda I was going to kind of interview her. But let's skip the interview, and why don't you just tell the story? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And that was a prayer, and with tears running down my face, I really wanted to know because I had nothing left in me, nothing. And I just sensed this, give thanks in all circumstances. And when... When he showed me that, I went, are you kidding? Really? I mean, come on. You can't really 
when I just heard my son could die and you want me to thank you? And this is this conversation going on between the Lord and I. And I sensed, yeah, that's what I want you to do. And I will tell you that it was an act of the will for me to say, okay, Lord, even in this circumstances, I will thank you. And so I said, thank you, Lord, for allowing us to go through this circumstance. And immediately I had this peace just wash over me. And I sat there for a minute, kind of not believing what was going on. <laughs> and then I walked up to my son's room, and I knocked on the door, and he was, had crawled in bed and pulled the covers over him. And, and so I laid down next to him and put my arm around him, and I said, Blair, let's, can we pray? And he said, And I said, Lord, thank you for allowing us to go through this. And he looked, turned over and looked over his shoulder at me like, what are you doing? <laughs> and I said, I know this is not what you're thinking, but can I just continue? And he said, okay. So I kept my arm around him and I said, Lord, I don't know why you're allowing us to go through this, but I want to thank you. And I sensed him just relax. That was about 10 years ago, and he had his open heart surgery, and he's doing great. Um, but those moments changed my attitude and my heart to what could happen. And I knew, I knew very well that that did not mean that my son wasn't going to die. But it was an act of saying, I will change my attitude because I trust you. There's, there's theology and then there's practical theology. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote a book on the problem of pain from a philosophical standpoint. And then he wrote that journal I was just telling you guys about a little while ago. And there's an amazing difference when you put reality to theology, when it becomes practical theology. Um, Michael Badriaki, I, I don't know if you guys remember, from Medical Teams International, a Ugandan guy, was here a month, month and a half ago. He was telling a story about he worked with the AIDS Commission in Uganda in the 90s when AIDS in Uganda was literally tops in the world, um, out of control situation. So many people were dying that he said in Kampala, the capital city, the fruit stands converted to um, selling coffins is where the money was at. So all the fruit stands, just literally all the streets turned to selling coffins. It was that bad. And he kind of paused and reflected and, and just completely changed direction and just says, you know, but in all this talk of AIDS and, and what happened, he says, you know, a lot gets missed. He says, the statistics don't have the tears. You know, sometimes theology doesn't have the tears in it. Um, thank you, Brenda, for being willing to, to share. I just want to read to you real quick Psalm 143. 
my favorite psalms ended up being like Psalm 139 through 145. Just kind of got in the habit of reading that block whenever I was in time, times of, of just bewilderment. Um, I just, it just became kind of my block. And it's funny, the psalms have a way of you, you find a section and you just begin to camp there. Um, but one, Psalm 143, let me just show you a pattern we see in the psalms that I think is why the psalms help us move from theology to practical theology and spit us out the back end in a different place than when we started. But listen to Psalm 143 in the pattern. O Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to my cry for mercy, and in your faithfulness and righteousness, come to my relief. Do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one living is righteous before you, meaning I claim nothing before you. Like, this isn't about me being vindicated because, look, I'm not righteous before you, so don't bring me to judgment. Just help me. The enemy pursues me. He crushes me to the ground. He makes me dwell in darkness like those long dead. So my spirit grows faint within me and my heart within me is dismayed. I remember the days of long ago and I meditate on all your works and consider what your hands have done. I spread out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord, for my spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me or I'll be like the one who goes down to the pit. Let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love, for I have put my trust in you. Show me the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Rescue me from my enemies, O Lord, for I hide myself in you. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God, and may your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life, and in your righteousness bring me out of trouble. In your unfailing love, silence my enemy and destroy all my foes, for I am your servant. And what you begin to see when you read the Psalms, and you can look for this pattern, but it starts with the tension, the question, the doubt, the fear. And it wrestles with God and, and faith and living the question and, and, and prayer. And it, and it resolves itself always with this, this notion, this idea of God's sovereignty, God's faithfulness, that that we can wait on God, that God is full of love and an unfailing love, and, and we commit ourselves, we resolve to submit ourselves to Him. And so there's something amazing about song, about psalms. Um, if, Led, if Led Zeppelin works, you know, um, the book of Psalms is ten times better. But it might be that you find some old Petra Praise album. It's, I mean, it's got to be some other stuff, but find a song that you can just wear out. Put it on your headphones, put it on your stereo, just wear it out and let it do its work on you. So the first thing we can do, doubt is normal, we have to live the question, we can actually do something which is learn to sing a new song. Find a new song. The last thing is this. You can love your way out. You can love your way out. The greatest, one of the greatest lessons I learned early as a Christian, I got into a funk. Um, I lost a thousand friends 
that were my fraternity party, go out from Wednesday night through Saturday night friends. I was the um, RA of the fraternity dorm at Clemson. You, you don't have off-campus houses. You literally get an on-campus fraternity dorm. And Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, I wouldn't be able to sleep till 2 in the morning um, because that's when everybody would come back. And, I mean, there's no point in even trying to go to sleep before that. And so I would read and I would write. And for the first time in college, I'd actually do my homework. <laughs> and uh, which engineering, so it's not like it was fun. And I would be depressed. I was, I mean, that was... I mean, night after night, it slowly wore me down. I didn't have any uh, a group of Christian friends yet. All the people on campus that were looking for friends and Christians were like freshmen, and I was 22 at the time. I'll, you know, but, but everyone my age was graduating in like a semester, and, you know, it was just real hard finding a, a network that way, and it, was, it just began to, to grind me up, and I began to become so focused on myself so aware of my own pity for myself, self-pity, um, that I just was stuck there. Have you ever been stuck? Where you feel like, what am I supposed to do? There's nothing left to do. And you're so, you have all these padded kind of reasons why you're the victim and, and poor you and, and you you feed on that. You tell yourself, poor you, all the time because it's like you're giving yourself affirmation. It's just like this little club of affirmation. It just makes you feel warm and fuzzy inside, but all alone, right? That's what self-pity is. And, and I, was, I called it um, a funk, F-U-N-K. A funk, just in a, in a rut, a pit. And one night... I was reading Proverbs, and Proverbs 11.25, you can, you can read it. And it says, He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. And that night, love switched from becoming a matter of obedience for me, and it became a strategy. And the next day, I just started looking for people to love. Uh, people that needed encouragement, people that needed affirmation. I just strategized love. And it was unbelievable um, what happened and what transpired in my life. And over the course of the next week, everything in my life seemed to start moving again. I was not backed into a corner. I was not in a rut anymore. I, it wasn't like I didn't have anything to do anymore. It was everything was bubbling this way. And, and it was unreal to me the lesson I learned, which is really Proverbs eleven twenty five: He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. That you can love your way out of almost any funk. That if you stop thinking about your lack of potential or opportunity or joy or affirmation or whatever attention you stop thinking about yourself and you literally see that there are a million opportunities for me to speak into someone else's need or to affirm somebody else in the middle of their funk or to you know this all of it that you begin to realize there's infinite possibility and your spirit feeds on what gives it joy said augustine augustine said 
your spirit feeds on that which gives it joy. And when you begin to see other people get happy or, or light up or be satisfied because you're bringing refreshment, he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. It gives you joy to make other people happy. We all know this, right? It's what's fun about giving gifts. It gives you joy to bring joy to other people. And your spirit literally begins to feed on that. And it grows and it's a source of energy. And you begin to realize, man, that's crazy. Like this whole spiritual thing about, you know, living water and feeding on, on spiritual realities and, and not stuff. Like there really is a source that, that's paradoxical. Jesus, his disciples came to him and they and he says, I've got food and drink that you know nothing about. It's to do the will of my Father who sent me. When, when we do good and, and bring good and, and all of this other stuff, it becomes something that we feed on. So when you're in a funk and there's nothing left to do, there's still something you can do. Switch gears altogether and love your way out. You just love your way out of your pit. Let me just read you a couple sentences I wrote. If there's no opportunity to move forward with your stress, your job, your relationship, your health, if there's, if there's no opportunity to move forward with your stress, look and find where there's opportunity to move forward in helping someone else with theirs. We think that we feel good when we feel good. It's, it's kind of a tautology. It's a strange thing, you know. I feel good. Why? Well, because I feel good. You know, it's all about feelings and it's all about good and it's all about just inert stuff. But we think feeling good means when I feel good. And the paradox is this. God programmed us to feel good most often when we're doing good. So if the problem is you don't feel good, it's not just because you don't feel good. It might mean that you need to do good. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. Just because we don't know anything to do with that, our problem, doesn't mean that you don't know anything to do. If you open your eyes, if we open our eyes and look around us, it's amazing the harvest of opportunity that exists at all times in the people and circumstances around us. And when we have a mindset that doubt is okay, that we can live the question, when we begin to wrestle with God and look for answers instead of being mired, we can begin to find a song that can hopefully get us unstuck and we can discipline ourselves to not start with self, but to start with others and to start with obedience. And we can literally love our way out. We did a sermon once, a sermon series called Give Your Life Away, and it was a difficult thing because I think a lot of people resonated with this idea that if you seek your own life, you lose it. But if you lose your life for Christ's sake, you'll find it. That our true source of joy or happiness or satisfaction is somehow literally bound up in not looking for those things, but in giving our life away. Now, that sermon series was difficult for a lot of people because you, you really come down to, well, what does that look like? Do I sell all I have and give it to the poor? Well, that's going to create a bunch of problems next week for my four kids. You know, I mean, somehow there's got to be something practical at the bottom of all this. 
And I think this whole idea of give your life away really comes down to a mindset of living by faith and a mindset that says, I'm not going to focus my energy inward, but I'm going to see the opportunity as existing outside and that the thing that I feed on and that gives me joy is leveraging my energy and my, my excitement and bringing good to others and to obeying God and doing his will, answering the call he has on my life. And that somehow in doing that, putting my energy out there, it gives me life. As I give my life away, I literally am nurtured and find life. That's why Jesus can be so depressing about material things and be so brutally honest that pain and suffering is a part of this world, yet still have so much joy and talk about good news. Because Jesus begins to show us that there's a source for joy and for life and for hope that is sustained and nurtured completely apart from your circumstances, your pain, or your suffering. So when we get this thing right, it's not doom and gloom and frowny-faced Christianity. And it's not just smiley Christianity and triumphalistic talk and that there's never going to be any pain in your life. When we get it right, like Jesus got it right, or like the Psalms got, we, we start with reality and with brokenness And then we find in it this amazing plan of redemption that God has of salvation, that he is our hope, that he does ground us, that we can't wait on him, and that he does feed our souls if we would walk by faith and trust him, which means being obedient, however paradoxical it is. The American dream is to become the very thing Jesus had little luck redeeming. I, uh, I want it to be my prayer that I would dream about becoming the kind of person that God is redeeming. Um, that I would care more about the depths of the spiritual life than the material life. And that scares the daylights out of me. Father, we, we do commit this morning to you, this church to you, our lives to you. We're weak. No one is righteous before you. We don't come to you seeking to be vindicated or to count up all all the good about us, in us, and through us. We just really want to throw ourselves on you because we do wrestle with faith. We're just kids who are afraid. And we have doubts and we have fear and we have pain and we exist in instances and seasons of suffering. And God, help us to break out of that to not just see ourselves, but to see you, to trust you, to, to be able to walk by faith. Give us a new song, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.